Welcome to the Risk and Repeat podcast, episode number 190. I'm Rob Wright, Security News Director at Tech Target, and I am here with security news writer Alex Kalafi. Alex, welcome. Thanks, Rob. Uh, how are you doing on this uh, fine September day? Um, pretty good. Pretty good. <laughs> no, you know what it is? It's that uh, where we're at in Massachusetts, the weather keeps alternating between yeah. uh, heavy rain and scalding heat. Yep. And uh, my my front lawn is is destroyed at the moment as a result. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I feel you on that. Yeah, we are. We're recording this on Thursday, September fifteenth, and it yeah, it has the weather in New England as it is want to do has taken some turns recently. Um, sure. Yeah, and it's September, and we we also this will be a I'm sure a subject for another pod at another time. But seems like cyber attacks are ramping back up. A lot of attacks on schools, public agencies, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So. Um, yeah, we're in the we're in the new season now. It's not officially fall yet, but we're in getting uh, there. Yeah, we're getting there. So, uh, but today our topic is government related. We are talking about new cybersecurity guidance that was released this week on Tuesday uh, by the White House by the Biden administration. Sort of a follow up to not sort of a follow up, but a follow up to the. Uh, Cybersecurity Executive Order from May 2021 by uh, President Biden. Alex, you wrote about this. What can you tell us about this uh, this new guidance? Right. So as you said, uh, Biden signed the executive order, which was called Improving the Nation's Cybersecurity last May. Uh, the whole point of that executive order, as people may remember, is to implement sort of technologies like uh, some zero trust stuff, multi-factor authentication, and to sort of modernize the U.S. cyber defenses, but with a focus on sort of the federal agencies, the stuff that the White House can directly influence. Although there was some language, if I remember right, about sort of the U.S. as a whole, but but a lot of it sort of applied to the federal agencies. Mm -hmm. Um, So we saw a new extension of that, I would say uh, with this new memo, um, which sort of outlined more specific details of stuff that was sort of suggested. Um, The guidance for this was specifically about the software that the U S federal agencies would purchase and utilize within government networks. Um, Definitely echoes of solar winds. This will get to, And it was sort of saying the requirements for using uh, said software and and I guess by extension, purchasing said software. Uh, And there were new, I believe, NIST uh, guidelines that were made as part of this Mm -hmm. uh, executive order last year. And what they're saying is that for any software that the government uses or will use, you need to go to the software publisher, which for all intents and purposes is the vendor mm-hmm. and, and tell them like, Hey, we need you to tell us that your uh, software uh, is secure according to these guidelines. And we need evidence via artifacts and, and um, what was the software bill of materials to basically mm-hmm. show uh, the evidence sort of proof uh 
sort of putting putting proof to it. And it's kind of on its own, not necessarily that big a deal, like when you look at it. But there are a lot of implications of the U.S. sort of mandating these requirements. Right. Good in the sense that, like, it's sort of expecting a standard of software that's being used by the government. But it's also interesting in that while they're not legally compelling people to uh, improve their software security, the U.S. government is an enormous purchaser of software. Um, Mm -hmm. at black hat, Chris Krebs said that the U S department of defense is likely the biggest customer of every large vendor, whether that's true or not. I don't know. There's probably, it's probably mostly true. And, and I believe the number he was throwing around was like a hundred billion, but I, I forget if that's true, but it was, it was a lot of money. Um, and if your software is not according to the U S government standards, you kind of lose one of your biggest customers. So mm-hmm. there's this other, this other potential implication of um, the U S government sort of holding some of these vendors by the neck and going like, Hey, here's how you have to get your software uh, better if you want our money. So it's something that's like deceptively simple, like, okay, uh, you have to use good software, but from a business and logistics standpoint, it gets way more complicated. Is, is that, is that fair to say? No. Yeah. I think, I think that's a fair assessment. It's, it's interesting because, you know, when that executive order came out, there were a lot of sort of sweeping goals and, you know, we're going to do this and we're going to do that. And there were a lot of questions about how this was going to be, um, executed and how it was going to be enforced. And one of the areas, uh, you know, like that executive order, I mean, it basically said that the NIST National Institute of Standards and Technology had to create guidance for really two, two new documents. It was the secure software development framework and the software supply chain security guidance. And so now those are are here i mean i think they were actually released previously um but they're part of this new overall guidance and yeah if you don't if you don't if you're not following the rules the requirements then you're kind of you know out in the cold uh mm-hmm. as a software vendor which i can understand the private sector may have some concerns about that and about how it's being enforced and how some of these requirements are being uh, interpreted. But really there's only, so this is sort of a little hidden part of the the document that I thought was interesting. So the, the OMB uh, office of management and budget is, is sort of overseeing this and it's um, the the memo was, uh, or I should say the white house statement was authored by uh, Chris Darusha who has a, did you notice how long his title was? Um, Cause he, I guess functionally has two, um, two different jobs, federal um, CISO and deputy national cyber director. Uh, mm-hmm. He sounds like he has a lot on his plate, mm-hmm. um, but the, the memo included um, 
like the 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 self attestation part is really the only I think requirement that's sort of broadly applied across all agencies. Some of the other things in here uh, about you know you have to have a vulnerability um, disclosure program and you have to provide software artifacts, software bill of materials, et cetera, et cetera. That's sort of like, you know, an agency may require that. But the self-attestation, like that's really the only requirement, but there's a lot of individual things in those documents that you have to basically say, you have to pledge that you've completed them, Um, which is not, you know, that's not a walk in the park. I don't know if you've... um, had a chance to read the, like, I took a look at the um, supply chain documentation and I'm like, there's, there's a fair amount here and the, and the software development framework, uh, same thing. Um, you know, there's all sorts of things in their requirements about, you know, implementing a, a, a secure software development life cycle, like really, you know, following through and making sure that you are, uh, implementing a number of best practices. So yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how like private sector software companies respond to this and uh, whether or not companies fail, quite honestly. Mm -hmm. So um, you're so for the supply chain thing, you're talking about the guidance that was from like February, right? Yeah. Yeah. Earlier this year. That was linked in the in the footnotes of it. Um, yeah, I, I think it's kind of interesting to think about all the different angles and, and it's one of the times that I wish either of us worked in software <laughs> development and security. Cause I, cause I, I'm curious what like sort of the professionals on the ground have to say about it. Not the people running the companies, but the professionals who, who like sure. know this stuff in an, in an intimate way, because there, there's one part of me that's like, ah, oh, the government trying to force companies what to do is that. Is that a good thing? But then the other thing is like, well, if it's best practices and it's things that yeah. companies should be doing and there's so many crappy vulnerabilities and then we have ZDI sort of changing their disclosure timelines based yeah. on companies uh, with broken patches and then bad bug bounty programs, assuming they even exist in the first place. And if this is a way to sort of push companies or vendors against the rope and, and get them to make more secure software and, and sort of invest more resources into this stuff. Mm-hmm. I think it's great. It's just, there's so much here that I wish there was, I wish we, uh, we had someone on who knew <laughs> more well, intimately about it, you know? Yeah. I mean, so let's just, so, so we'll turn to the supply chain threats and the solar ones angle here in a moment. But let's just stick with the software development, you know, mm-hmm. um, and let's apply it to something we've recently potted about and discussed um, Twitter. So the Twitter whistleblower complaint from Mudge, you know, mm-hmm. one of the things that really stood out in that was that basically his allegation that uh, Twitter does not have any sort of like functional, like, developer environment that basically all the developers and engineers in the company, well, they have way too, too much access and way too, too much sort of um, um, privileged access. And they basically, they're basically pushing stuff live directly from their systems, which is 
I mean, that's not great. That's, that's pretty, but so like, there's a company that's been very successful. I get that it's young and I get that it, you know, by, by relative, um, you know, for grading on a scale, uh, but it's, it's very successful, has a lot of money, has a lot of employees. Um, and yet they don't, it doesn't seem again, based on the whistleblower complaint that there's any sort of, um, structural, you know, software development framework within that company, let alone a secure one as outlined by the NIST. So, Mm -hmm. you know, not that the government is going to be deploying, you know, Twitter, I mean, Twitter's a social media company. It's a service. It's not, you're not selling an application, but that just gives you an idea of like, you know, even some of these big brand name companies, they don't have any sort of functional system for secure development. And, th- and there's, and I just want to say there's two aspects to the secure development. There's, there's securing your development environment, you know, there's securing your pipeline and your development life cycle and making sure that like nobody gets in there and tinkers with the code and that you're not introducing, um, you're not allowing threat actors to get in there and, and get control of it a la like a solar ones. But then there's also, you know, we can't, we have to make sure that we're producing good code and that we're not, um, releasing buggy software. So it's, it's, you know, it's, there's two sides to that coin. And, you know, again, reading through that document, the NIST document, which I, I should note, um, shout out to, um, uh, someone that it is a tech target uh, contributor, Karen Scarfone. I believe that she was one of the authors of that paper. Um, mm. Yeah, and it, I mean it's essentially a white paper. It's it's the the SSDF um, that the NIST released is is just it's like it, it's very techie and it's very dry and it's like this is what you should be doing and it's it's not long and it's not like super technical but like this is, this is how you should do it. And it's, um, you know, these are the tasks that need to be completed and these are the steps that you should follow. It's not, you know, it's not a maze of like, uh, you know, super techie, um, jargon, but it's also, you know, I can understand how a company might look at this and just be like, oh my God, where do we begin? So Mm -hmm. I think, I think that development part, like implementing DevSecOps, and implementing a secure development framework and a secure development environment, I think that's going to be really challenging for the companies out there that haven't done so already. Um, and I don't know what kind of timeline could be implemented on an organization that that hasn't. Like when do <laughs> when when do you think they're going to be able to like complete something like that? So I don't know. Well, okay. Let me let me ask you this then, sure. because. I don't know if the long-term solution is the government uh, sort of realizes that people can't meet these. So then they sort of subtly soften up a little bit or if, or if they don't, but then the question is that if they don't, does that mean we end up in a situation that they'll only buy from companies with the most resources Mm. Um, and as a customer, a lot of vendors end up losing their contract with the government, which I mean, I shouldn't feel bad for a company. And I don't know if I do because I don't 
necessarily understand exactly how this works, but I'm curious about the long-term uh, business implications, if this has any impact on the greater, I guess, software landscape. Yeah, I mean, just like speaking in practical terms, I don't think this is the kind of thing that's you know, suddenly going to eliminate scores of software vendors. Right. Because that would grind operations to a halt in the government, and they don't want that happening. So... Mm-hmm. And I think there's some wiggle room in the documentation. Like, so in section one of the of the memo about the guidance, uh, there's a section here that says, or there's a graph in that section that says, if the software vendor cannot attest to one or more practices from the NIST guidance, now the NIST guidance, just as an aside, that includes both the software development and the supply chain documentation. Uh, if they cannot test a one or more practices from the NISD guidance identified in the standard self-attestation form, the requesting agencies shall require the software producer to identify those practices to which they cannot attest, document practices they have in place to mitigate those risks, and require a plan of action and milestones, parentheses, POA and M, parentheses, to be developed. Uh, the agency shall take appropriate steps to ensure that such documentation is not posted publicly. Uh, that's a little concerning. That's me hmm. uh, as an aside. Either by the vendor or by the agency itself. If the software producer supplies that documentation and the agency finds it satisfactory, the agency may use the software despite the producer's inability to provide a complete self-attestation. So it sounds like there's some wiggle room there. Um and also a little concerning about like <laughs> if you had a software vendor that was like, yeah, we we flunked that software um, development framework, but you know, are we good? And <laughs> like, imagine <laughs> that being made public. That would not be yeah. a good look. No, um, no, not at all. I don't know. So on like on one hand, I, I there's some wiggle room, and I think that there's some discretion that different agencies, as long as they're not you know super sensitive, intelligence, defense. Um, can uh, exert to sort of um, keep whatever software vendors they feel are are, are really um, intrinsic to their operations, whether or not they they fully complete, you know, the self attestation. Um, but on the other hand, like I don't know, how do you feel about this? I mean, it seems like that self attestation form isn't <laughs> isn't very firm, right? Like, I mean, how good can it be if you can sort of wiggle? out of you know a few areas here and there and just sort of say um you know we'll try harder can you give us uh an extension i guess that could be the answer to my question that i just had right which is uh the question of how will this affect the landscape well Mm -hmm. there's enough wiggle room for the u.s government to regulate this as needed and silently decide if a certain vendor is over the line or not, the actual, and it gives them some wiggle room to decide what the actual line is, I guess. Right. Um, which may be necessary given the stuff that we were just talking about a minute ago, how like maybe it could, like they don't want to harm the private sector either. Yeah. yeah. So maybe, maybe the wiggle room's necessary. Maybe it, it makes it, uh, less effectual, or maybe this is the only way it could happen. I'm not sure. You know, 
It's probably, I mean, I think it's probably that last option. I don't know that they would be able to come up with something that was like really super firm and like, you must do this. You are contract because these aren't even contractual obligations. So you, you could, you could foresee a scenario down the road where a vendor, probably not a major vendor, but maybe just sort of like a niche vendor says, you know, we signed this contract in good faith. We are, we, we have abided by all requirements as, you know, previously outlined. Um, and yeah, we didn't complete or we didn't fulfill all the requirements in the self-attestation form according to these SI, uh, NIST guidances, but we're not contractually obligated to you and you need to pay us, Uncle mm-hmm. Sam, and taking them to court. Um, no, I don't, I don't, I don't think that's a great look for a software vendor to say that, to say like, you know, we, we didn't meet all these cybersecurity requirements <laughs> and yeah. we want our money. Um, but so I, I think that they probably, the, the federal government probably went to, you know, those, those big tech companies, those big software companies, Microsoft, Oracle, uh, IBM, uh, Google, Amazon, and probably went to all of them and just said, this is what we're going to do. What do you think? I mean, and I think some of the guidances here went through a few different versions, if I, if memory serves. So there's probably things in there that they wanted to do that they you know, probably had to scale back and um, find a way to make more malleable and and um, appease the vendor community. Now, I don't know that this is going to have much uh, of a of a effect in the short term, but maybe long term, it could. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't know, but I do think it's worth talking about the supply chain security aspect of this because that was something that stood out in the memo from Darusha when he, you know, I'll read the section because I think it's worth highlighting. He says, in 2020, a number of federal agencies and large corporations were compromised by malicious code that was added into SolarWinds software. The small change created a backdoor in the digital infrastructure of federal agencies and private sector companies. This incident was one of a string of cyber intrusions and significant software vulnerabilities over the last two years that have threatened the delivery of government services to the public, as well as the integrity of vast amounts of personal information and business data that is managed by the private sector, end quote. Now, I, I do you think anything in this guidance would necessarily prevent an attack on the scale of a solar winds campaign? No, (laughs) but I don't think if that did happen, people are going to like, be like, Hey, look at this quote either. So I think that's just the language they use probably. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I, I personally, I think it's good that both the executive order last year and I'm really like many different government actions taken in the last two years uh, mm-hmm. in order to shore up not just federal government security, but just, you know, state, local, private sector has invoked this, the specter of solar winds and used that as sort of like a, a line of demarcation like a a turning point like we've got to get serious about this or we're going to get pwned again and it could be worse it's just to me like i i see that example being thrown around a lot and like 
I don't know that anything in this guidance would prevent that from happening. I give them credit for trying to usher in changes, but like, Hey, we got to remember the only reason solar winds like that, that, that backdoor and that campaign was detected was because one of those, you know, APT 28 or whatever was cozy bear, um, uh, fancy bear, fozzy bear. I don't remember which one it was attributed to, to, to Russian intelligence. The only reason that one of those uh, nation state threat actors, um, got caught was because they, and I don't know why they did this. I guess they're just getting greedy. They had already broken into FireEye and they were undetected. And for whatever reason, one of the hackers had gotten into, um, a privileged account and tried to set up their t- set up that individual's 2FA to one of the hacker's own devices. And the FireEye employee got a, an alert saying like, do you want 2FA on this device? And he was like, what device? And that kicked <laughs> off the whole thing. I mean, it's incredible. Like they, they had done all of that and it hadn't been detected. They had been in f- solar winds for, I think if I'm if memory serves, I think I'm in one of your articles here taking a look at it. I think it was 2019. I think they said that at, at RSA. 2019, they were in there, you know, almost a year before at least, and then doing all this stuff and, and they got, you know, nabbed by an MFA alert because it seems like they got a little greedy. Um, right. Like, I don't, I don't know that anything in the software development framework or, or I guess maybe you could argue that the software supply chain documentation and guidance, like maybe that just raises everybody's sort of awareness and makes them a little bit more paranoid um, and a little bit more diligent about what's going on in their development environment to make sure that there's no supply chain attacks. I don't know. I don't know. Uh, Well, the U.S. government was compromised as part of Solar Winds, yeah, right? Uh, pretty they, badly. They, they had their their whole butt very brief and briefly shown to the world, <laughs> which means they have to do something. And yeah. you have ransomware getting worse. You have government contractors, hospitals, uh, schools, small governments getting hit by ransomware. Mm-hmm. You have Colonial Pipeline, which, while not exactly the u.s government is part of the u.s government supply chain and an important part of it um which i don't know if it's per se the language i would use is that they had been embarrassed but i think enough stuff had happened that have paid that have allowed enough people who don't normally think about ransomware to really think about ransomware and to be worried about ransomware and and i guess all the extensions of it that we have one all the CISA campaigns, which I know that they're they are trying to do good work regardless of that. And right, all yeah, yeah. going on, but you have all these CISA campaigns, and more relevant to the stuff I'm saying, you have these Biden executive orders, these statements um, that are all about combating ransomware. There was the stuff against Russia, so I think this is part of one larger campaign to help get some of this like kind of awful embarrassing stuff under control and i think this is one piece of it and i think that any sort of strong language the government uses should probably be taken as like 
ah, this is the language the government uses in these situations. Yeah. I mean, to your point, though, I, I think there is is probably some merit to, you know, it. it Everybody knows that ransomware is a problem. Everyone is, maybe they're not doing everything they can to prevent ransomware, but certainly all the talk about it from the government and the actions and the, the stuff that um, CISA and other agencies, I'm still saying CISA, by the way, you can go CISA. I won't judge you. I, I don't, I, <laughs> am I allowed it's to fine. say, I don't care. It's fine. It's fine. <laughs> it's fine. You can, you can do whatever you want. I won't judge. Thanks. Um, <laughs> But, but like that, I think has had an effect, just, just sort of everybody is aware of the problem. And I think there is value in making people aware of supply chain threats and what something like a solar winds attack could do. Mm-hmm. So on that hand, it, it could have a long-term effect, maybe even a short-term effect too, um, even if like a self-attestation form isn't sort of the end-all be-all for, you know, improving security postures, which I think we both agree, probably not. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, the government's got to do something and they have, and it's probably just the first step of many to come, but it's good that they're, I think they're doing something. Um, sure. whether or not you're, we're going to start to see lots of companies flunking this, uh, requirement, um, you know, remains to be seen, but they had, they had to start somewhere, I think. So. And this uh, is somewhere. Yeah, for sure. It's yeah. somewhere. Yeah. And we'll see how it goes. We'll see yeah. where they end up. Um, you know, maybe we'll be talking about this, uh, in episode 290. Or whatever. Well, that that'd be a long time from now. Oh, just, <laughs> let me scale that back. I'll edit that out. No, we'll we'll leave it in. Um, well, Alex, I appreciate you jumping on the pod and chatting with me about this. I know it's government stuff; it's a little dry, but I think it's an important topic that probably has a lot of implications. Um, so I appreciate it. I had fun, Rob. That's all I can say. (laughs) Thank you, Alex. And thank you to the readers and listeners of Search Security and Tech Target Editorial. I'm Rob Wright, and we will see you next time.